This is Ground Truthing, a Westchester Children's Association podcast. By 1917, every state in the United States of America had passed laws making it a requirement for all school-aged children to receive an education. Prior to this, the 14th Amendment, passed in 1868, made it a constitutional right for the same education to be accessible to all, regardless of race. Yet today, students suspended or expelled for discretionary violations are nearly three times more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system the following year. Data shows that those students are overwhelmingly more likely to be Black. This system, where working-class minority students, mainly Black males, are disproportionately funneled into the criminal justice system, is called the school-to-prison pipeline. In Westchester County, 14% of children are Black, yet they make up 41% of public school children that receive out-of-school suspensions, 56% of kids in the foster care system, and 62% of juvenile detention populations. 67 years after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional, Black students are still facing an educational environment that delivers worse educational outcomes than their white counterparts. It is essential that we ask why these disparities exist, why they persist, and what can be done to initiate palpable reform in our educational institutions. We spoke with Allison Lake, Executive Director of the Westchester Children's Association, who was able to outline for us what the school-to-prison pipeline looks like here in Westchester. We know here in Westchester County that students of color, African-American, Hispanic, Latino students are um, suspended and disciplined at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And Westchester Children's Association developed in 2020 a fact sheet on uh, black children and youth um, in partnership with the Anti-Racist Alliance and Children's Village that looked at some of those things. So, you know, black children represent 14% of children here in Westchester County, and yet they're 41% of the public school children that receive out-of-school suspensions, um, and 62% of those that end up in juvenile detention centers here in Westchester. I think that speaks directly to your, you know, your first question of um, the kind of school to prison pipeline that people speak about, and it has to do with the um, disproportionate use of, you know, heavier-handed discipline, if you will, of, of students of color. Um, we find students of color are often in schools where there is more security or resource officers, as they. Um, are also called, and so, you know, it's sort of, when you're in that situation, then not surprisingly, more children find themselves, um, you know, disciplined at a harsher level. It's not that um, students of color get into any more trouble than any other students, than white students, but it's just what the action is taken. And we have certainly seen, um, and there is research that says, that is, 
you know, disrespectful um, between two people, and then, then somebody else can do the exact same thing and, you know, it, it not rise to that level of being disciplined um, to that severity. So I think we have to start, as you said, at kind of the, the beginning and look at schools and how we can form uh, more supportive and restorative climates in our um, schools, because not to say that um, children uh, don't do things that are wrong and need to be disciplined, but it should be done in a restorative um, pattern. The Yonkers public school system consists of over 26,000 pre-kindergarten to grade 12 students in district schools, as well as nearly 5,000 attending charter, parochial, or private schools. 73% of those in district schools and out-of-district programs are economically disadvantaged, with 60% being Hispanic and 17% Black. Allison describes some of the work being done within the Yonkers public schools to address the school-to-prison pipeline. You know, Westchester County has over 40 different school districts, and they each have their um, board of trustees and their codes of conduct, and certainly there are templates that are available in New York State for all public schools, but at the end of the day, every district um, does have their own code of conduct that they're able to, to put forward. And, you know, you mentioned the Yonkers School District, which I know for the past several years have really um, looked at their codes of conduct and, 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 you know, revised and revised again to try and limit some of the disproportionality that has happened, as I said, with the, the type of offenses and then what is the actual punishment and, and making it, you know, out of school suspension to really be the last resort. Um, and as I said, there's a movement throughout the state around statewide legislation, the solutions, not suspensions, to do just that, to say, first of all, that we cannot use um, suspensions for our youngest students, you know, under grade three, for example. You know, could we all agree that those under seven or eight years old, regardless of what's happened, you know, should not be suspended, but the action or behavior um, should be looked at to understand why a child perhaps is, is misbehaving and trying to give them services and support. So that's a big piece of it because it can start that early in a classroom. In discussing the school-to-prison pipeline and how it functions on an institutional and more localized level, it is important to recognize the implicit biases that have harmed Black people, and Black men in particular, for centuries. What does it look like when teachers' biases make their way into a classroom setting? Allison describes it for us. We do an annual advocacy breakfast where we bring in a, um, a speaker, an outside speaker, to help all of us kind of think outside the box and, and to learn some things. And um, this was a doctor professor from Yale that spoke a few years ago. Um, uh, Gilly was his last name. And he had done a study of early childhood, or preschool teachers, where he had uh, the teachers observe four students, young four-year-old pre preschools who were playing, you know, around the table with Legos or something like that. Um, and they were instructed to, you know, look at the child um, who you think is misbehaving or not, you know, doing right by their peers. And he actually tracked their eye movement. And as soon as she said, you know, oh, look, there may be a child who's going to do something 
wrong or misbehave. I, I forget what ridiculous amount of teachers' eyes went to the black boy. It was a black boy, a, a white boy, a black girl, and a white girl. And automatically, um, you know, their eyes went to the black boy. And we, we have heard this over and over again. There is research to, to say that even at young age, black boys are suspended more than any other group. Um, and it turns out that the children, no one was doing any, anything wrong. They were behaving as, you know, four-year-olds would behave. They were just playing at a table. And so those kind of implicit biases that we all have um, start early, and we have to address them early. So there's, you know, the, the sort of teacher awareness and training piece. There's the codes of conduct that have to be out there. And we have to hold all of our um, districts accountable. As you said, there are different districts here in Westchester, some more diverse than others. Um, but those that have a diverse population of students, I think, um, you know, have a level of responsibility to make sure that discipline is being um, doled out equally amongst their, their students. It is clear that these inherent biases of violence and criminality that society places on black men is reflected in the school-to-prison pipeline and in black men's overrepresentation in the criminal justice system. We got the opportunity to speak with Yonkers kindergarten teacher Ofsi Perondian. We spoke about what she's learned from her years of teaching and why she chooses to approach teaching with empathy. Afsi also acknowledges that using the same forms of discipline for all of her students does not work. She chooses to approach discipline with an awareness that every child is different. Afsi shared a touching anecdote from her first year of teaching that has stuck with her throughout her career. 
Ofsi's approach to teaching and discipline demonstrates that every teacher has the power to lead with empathy and have a positive impact on their students. Rob Rizzo has 24 years of teaching experience, 17 of which has been in the Yonkers Public Schools. He's a current 7th and 8th grade teacher and has priorly worked as a high school dean of students. Sitting down with him, we received valuable insight of discipline in one of our county's school districts. All teachers, uh, you know, are trained to a, to a certain extent regarding discipline, whether it's, you know, in the teacher training program uh, while they're in college or, uh, or graduate school, you know, and then there are uh, always uh, workshops given uh, to teachers that are already in the field to try to improve um, the use of disciplinary measures and you know there's definitely a movement in schools uh to train teachers to tone down potentially uh combustible situations with students for uh teachers to uh take a more therapeutic approach to hand to the handling of students 
rather than a punitive uh, approach. And that's certainly the movement in, in public schools today. Um, disciplinary measures in school, you know, range from, you know, teacher-student conversations uh, to, you know, teacher reprimanding students privately, teacher reprimanding students in person, um, teacher referring students to uh, an administrator uh, because of behavior issues, uh, and then that can lead to uh, detentions, suspensions, uh, and, you know, in severe cases, uh, expulsions. In Yonkers, uh, you know, suspensions uh, are uh, not something that we like to do on a regular basis. We really try to hold back on suspending a student unless it's absolutely necessary. Uh, we are required by the code of conduct that when a when a, a crime occurs, when there's the, the, the commitment of a crime on school property, that there is a mandatory suspension attached with committing a crime. So for example, students bringing a weapon uh, into the school, uh, students, uh, you know, starting a small fire in the bathroom or something like that, uh, intentionally, you know, arson, uh, those types of things are things that happen in school from time to time and, you know, would lead to suspend to suspensions. And, you know, if they're repeated, you know, could potentially lead to, to expulsions, especially violent crimes. Rob then offers his insight into suspensions and expulsions. Unfortunately, uh, I would say that suspensions and expulsions typically do not improve student behavior. Um, typically, uh, suspensions lead to resentment on the part of the student uh, and their parents. Um, that being said, I, I do believe that there are times when students need to be suspended. You know, that, that there are times where having certain students in school creates an unsafe environment for the other students. And while that may be problematic for that particular student who's being suspended, um, in terms of the greater good and protecting uh, the rest of the student body, it's, it, it's sometimes necessary. These stark disparities in educational outcomes are the product of centuries of systemic racial inequality and decades of policies that have disenfranchised Black Americans. Therefore, it is essential that policies aimed at closing the school-to-prison pipeline are a combination of comprehensive reform on federal, state, and municipal levels. While there is certainly work that individual teachers can make in their classrooms, Allison Lake reminds us that systemic issues require systemic solutions. People from communities where perhaps they don't have the, um, uh, the racial ethnic groups or, or breakout that's there need to look and pay attention to what's happening at the state level around our legislation and what kind of second chances that we're giving young people who do find themselves involved in the justice system. And so the solutions, not suspensions I mentioned, is, is state legislation. Um, there's a broader youth justice coalition that 
are looking at expanding um, opportunities for that, you know, 16 to 21, 16 to 25 year old population that finds themselves in the justice system. And that's something that I would hope again that all uh, of us, particularly the voting public, would take note of and demand better opportunities for young people, even if they don't look like you or come from, you know, the community where your children go to school. At the end of the day, it's about supporting all young people in the kind of next generation. At the same time, Allison notes that there is a significant opportunity for districts to make changes on a more localized level. Monitoring your data. The school districts need to know, um, you know, who's being uh, disciplined, who's being suspended. Look at it by race, ethnicity, gender, um, special ed, not special ed, to sort of see where the picture is. And then um, they can kind of hone in on those uh, policies that are impacting that. And I know districts, as I said, you know, we spoke about Yonkers, that's what they've done. And they continue to look at their data to make sure it's headed in the right direction. And so I think it's that local school district level data they need to look at. They need to look at their codes of conduct, especially if they, um, you know, haven't kind of pulled them out and dusted them off for a few years to see if they are in line with uh, many of the best practices. This is an area that's getting a lot of attention nationally. Um, I think there are a lot of templates and, and policies out there that have shown um, that they mentioned more positive outcomes for kids. And so for every district to sort of look and say, okay, what, what could we perhaps change in our policy levels um, to get better outcomes for kids? At the, at the end of the day, schools are, um, you know, in the business of, of teaching and educating kids and seeing that they graduate from high school. So how do we increase those numbers? Looking at graduation um, rates. There is a plethora of opportunity and a great need for restorative work at all levels. But which policies must be prioritized and which levels are most important? Allison says a little bit of everything. I think there is place at the state level, so those, you know, a local level, but then at the state level also to, to lend guidance um, and to really change some of the more, um, you know, dangerous sort of policies that, that have been, been out there and impacting children of color. And so it's like we have to kind of do it at all levels, Michael, I guess would be my answer. You know, we need to, to do the state, we need to do the, the county, especially county as diverse as Westchester with, with our many districts, and then at the district level as well. Um, and I think transparency is, is the biggest piece because, um, you know, when parents, when community members understand what's happening at their schools and, and they can work in partnership with school personnel and um, board trustees to bring about better outcomes for the kids, it's, it's a win for, for everyone. The school to prison pipeline is rooted in stark disparities in access to resources. Allison speaks on how these inequities work to funnel black and other minority students into the justice system, or lack thereof. Westchester Children's Association was involved with, with many and led the effort here in Westchester County for the Raise the Age legislation that happened um, in the 2017 budget. Um, and that took a lot of people from all walks of life really working together to say we could do better um, and give our children, uh, regardless of their background or zip code or race, uh, more opportunity. Uh, all kids, as I said, um, make mistakes and get in trouble, but it's the resources and support. 
um, in wealthier districts, as you mentioned. It's like children certainly get in trouble, whether it is with, um, you know, drugs or substance or, you know, just discipline. Um, but it's the resources that a family may have that keeps their child out of, say, the public system. You know, or we'll get him, you know, or her some support around alcoholism or something like that. And another child, um, same behavior, but not access to those same kind of services, will find themselves, you know, in, in the public system. And we know really our goal is to, to have kids not touch the justice system at all, because once you touch it, you're more likely to get deeper um, involved in it. The pervasive inequality we see in our criminal justice system and the school-to-prison pipeline here in Westchester requires comprehensive reform on both the macroscopic and microscopic level. Whether it be systemic policy change on a state level or more localized efforts to reframe disciplinary approaches, the work that needs to be done is important and it is necessary. In recognizing and working to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, Westchester and the country as a whole can work towards providing students with the opportunities and resources they deserve. We give young people structure and opportunities and second chances, um, you know, the support to deal with angle management or mental health issues or, you know, substance abuse issues and put them in a supportive environment, um, they can really change their, their, their lives around. Um, you know, when we started to raise the age legislation, we were often quoting brain science that talks about young people's brains forming until 25 years of age, and that last piece, that frontal cortex where, you know, understanding to put off, um, you know, you don't need that immediate kind of gratification, you're better able to, to reason. That happens all the way to 25, and so up until that time, I think it's important that we recognize that in young people and we give them opportunity to, um, to have changes. There's a uh, Judge Rice out of New Rochelle who is piloting an opportunity court um, in, in New Rochelle, again, to give young people supports and, and mentors and help them to really change their trajectory. And it's more programs like that that we need everyone to support, to get behind, and to stay at the county level, at the state level, you know, we want the dollars and resources to, to do that. Um, we, we don't want to throw away any young person. And so I, I think that if we can continue to, to fight, as I said, for these kind of um, expansions in our legislation and, and policy, we really are giving um, young people more opportunity. Thank you.